Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey, I'm glad you joined us today. Our podcast, once again, is going to be covering what we talked about in worship this last Sunday. Before I get to that and kind of set that up, I've been doing a thing privately. Well, no, not so private, but just independent of this, where I've been doing interviews of different people from public service, nonprofits, other churches, trying to highlight what other people do and talk about important things. I've had kind of a hard time scheduling people, so if you know of anybody that would like to sit down and do one of these interviews, most recent one we put out was Jack Adams. It was received very well. People really enjoy watching these things, but it's been kind of a chore to find people willing to 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 do these things, um, and obviously I enjoy it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. So if you know of somebody, I would just ask that you uh, put me in contact with, with who that person is and, and help set it up. Now, the setup to this uh, podcast we've been preaching through the book, uh, the letter to the Romans, written by Paul, and um, this section that we covered last Sunday, chapter five, is uh, more high-minded a little bit, but it 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 ties into everything that we've spoken of thus far, and it lays the groundwork for what comes next, which is conversation about the role of sin in the lives of believers. So it's, it's really pretty important and uh, very good connecting tissue. So I, uh, I hope you find it fruitful. And of course, we always welcome your feedback and support and prayer. So I hope you enjoy this session today. Be well. Okay, it's time for us to go to Romans, unless there's anything else that needs to get said before we spend the rest of the time in the Bible. This is not the Jeffrey Rickman show. This is the body of Christ um, worship uh, for Christ Jesus. He's the main character of all that we do. This doesn't have to be what I have planned. In, in actuality, this is what Sarah Beth had planned for today. I, I'm just so glad to have her. I don't have to think about anything. It all just comes together. But um, there's nothing saying we always have to do exactly what's planned. If there's anybody who needs a, a word on something or you need to share a word, if you read 1 Corinthians, you get the impression it wasn't about the pastor getting up and everything. It was about individual people standing up and encouraging the body at different times. So if you ever want to offer a word of encouragement, exhortation, prophecy, uh, this is the place for it. You don't even have to let me know beforehand. Just know if you say something crazy, I'm going to correct you. <laughs> so uh, I was talking with one of the guys in the jail last Monday, two Mondays ago, and um, he he's really on fire for Jesus right now, and, and he was encouraging the guys and at one point he said uh you know and you just look satan right in the face and you say do your worst satan i i i can beat you and i i wanted to say oh that's bad advice man and so if he said that in church i would say please do not challenge satan <laughs> you do not want that in your life um so it's with love that we correct one another every now and again i hope it's received romans is is going to correct us um it corrects us in a number of ways so we've done the first four chapters. We're on chapter 5 now. It's on page 1750 of your pew Bible, 1750. The, um, just as a basic build up to where we are, 
This is to a church in Rome that Paul has not visited before. There seems to be some tension in the church between Jews who are following Jesus and Gentiles who are following Jesus alongside one another. There seems to be some jockeying for positions of favoritism. Uh, the Jews feel like because they're children of Abraham, according to the scriptures, they're God's chosen people, they're his favorites. So uh, the, the letter begins with Paul seeming to side against them. He preaches against the Gentiles saying, oh, let, I need to find this because we're going to talk about it again. In chapter one, it says, um, verse 18, you don't have to go there, but I want you to be reminded of this because we're going to talk about the role of the law today. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, this is Gentiles, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So I preached about this four Sundays ago. Uh, God rightly judges people of all ages, nations, and races, whether or not they've ever heard the word, because he has revealed himself to everybody through the creation. So everybody who's in rebellion against God, and that's everybody born, because everybody's born in sin, is rightfully under God's wrath. Rightfully going to be judged, but God's not happy about that, and that's why he sent Jesus, okay, for our forgiveness, and we're going to talk about that today. So that first chapter opens up, he actually humbles the Gentiles. He says, you guys are guilty whether or not you feel like it. Do you have to feel guilty in order to be guilty? If somebody comes to court here and they say, but judge, I don't feel like I'm guilty. Does that matter at all? Is Judge Davidson going to go, oh, you don't feel guilty? Well, get out of here then. <laughs> That's not how it works. That's not how justice works, okay? So you don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. He warns the Gentiles, you were born in guilt. If you persist in sin, you're still guilty. And then he warns them about a number of sins, starting with sexual sins, but then going out in every direction saying, all of these are signs of your continued sin and godlessness, so you need to repent. But then since the Jews probably feel cocky, he then turns on the Jews. And for three chapters, he's been telling the Jews they are not God's favorite people. They're just the ones that receive the law. And it's great that they received the law, but they're still born in sin and in need of salvation. Just like the Gentiles, God shows no favoritism. And he's been banging that into their heads this whole time. He's been saying your circumcision doesn't count for anything if you don't obey the Lord. Chapter 2, right off the bat, he says, you judge the Gentiles for sinning, and then you do the same thing, you hypocrites. And then he condemns them for their hypocrisy, right? And then he says, your circumcision doesn't count for anything. And then last week, we had him talking about, okay, what makes you a child of Abraham? Is it circumcision? Because uh, as the scriptures say, God was, uh, Abraham was accounted righteous while he was a Gentile, before he was circumcised. Not, he wasn't righteous because of things he did. He was righteous because of the faith he had. It's faith that saves us, not works. You remember treading this ground last week? It's faith that saves us, not works. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor, put him in your debt. It's God who through his grace gives you faith, and it's faith that saves you. So that's where we're picking up this week in chapter 5. Let's, let's go ahead and dig in. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... So we're right there with that same idea. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace is something that's over, uh, underrated today, but it's absolutely at the heart of the Christian faith. You and I were born enemies of God, alienated from God, 
because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of our faith that we have in that, we who were enemies of God are now at peace with God. Is that good news? Who here wants God as an enemy? If you do, you're a fool. God is... Jesus said, do not fear those who can destroy your body and do nothing else. Fear only him who can destroy your body and cast your soul into hell. That's God. That's why several times in the Old Testament we hear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without learning to fear the Lord, you can't go very far. That's, that's the very first step that even leads you to repentance. If you don't fear the Lord, you can't even repent rightly. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So grace is, is a blanket term for any gift God gives us that we didn't deserve and couldn't earn. So in this case, grace is salvation. Christ already gave us salvation, and our faith is what makes that salvation apply to us. So if you have that salvation, then that's like a key opening the door of salvation. That's what faith is. So I'm going to read that phrase one more time. Think of faith that way, and then we'll move on. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Isn't it a sin to boast? It is a sin to boast unless you're boasting about God. God is the one worthy of boasting about. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And you're going to see that word hope comes up several times here. Faith generates hope. And do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? And now faith, hope, and love. These are the three highest virtues. And then of those three, uh, love is the best. But faith and hope are what are talked about here. Verse 3. So he's talking about how we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory... In our sufferings. What on earth does that mean? I already kind of preached that message when we we're talking about the Coptic Christians. How many people know that to follow Christ means you're going to suffer? We live in an age of prosperity gospel where a lot of people think that if you hold to Jesus, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. That's a false gospel. Many of you who've been walking with Christ for some time, you've seen tragedy, and that's not because Jesus doesn't love you. That's because how th- this is how this world is, right? You remember how in the the desert, the wilderness, when Moses was leading the Israelites, they were complaining against God, and he set those serpents loose on them, and they were killing them, and everybody said, Moses, pray that God would take the serpents away, and Moses prayed to God, and God said, I'm not taking the serpents away, but when someone's bit, make this bronze statue of a a serpent, put it up on a, a, a stick, and anybody who looks at it, when they get bit, they won't die. That's the deal. That's the deal for us. We are still going to suffer in this life, but our suffering is going to glorify God. And so it says, we glory in suffering. Did Paul suffer? Did Peter suffer? Did Jesus suffer? And it was glorious. And when we suffer, we become like them. Paul used the language of, I complete Christ's suffering in my body. The notion is, we are the body of Christ, right? The church is the body of Christ, right? And when we suffer, we are completing the sufferings of Christ, and that is a glorious thing. Now, does that mean we're excited to suffer? We just run up to people who hate us and say, would you please hurt me? No, that's not how we live. But when suffering comes, we glorify God in that. God is glorified in that. That's a hard concept, isn't it? 
That's not an American concept. This is an eternal concept. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. You see that virtue of hope that we come around to? Hey, Susanna, what does pain do? Yeah, pain goes away and it makes you stronger. This is Rickman household culture. Every time our kids get hurt, we say, what does pain do? And they say, it goes away and it makes me stronger. And you know what? It does make you stronger. The more hard times you go through, I go, sometimes people come to me for counseling because they still don't realize I'm a complete fraud. And, and one of the things that we do when we talk through it is, okay, tell me about another time that you've really suffered badly. And they'll tell me about it. I'll say, okay, what got you through that time? And then do you feel those same muscles now to get through this hard time? A lot of people, they don't learn. They run from pain every time, and they never grow that muscle. They never get tougher. Here he's saying when we suffer, we lean into it. We grow tougher. We grow that, that spiritual toughness. We grow in perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to hope. So this is Christian bodybuilding right here. As suffering comes, we get stronger. Christ strengthens us. But that doesn't happen automatically. If you run from it, if you deny it, if you avoid it, you are going to stay weak all your life. But if you lean into it and you glory in your sufferings, God will strengthen you and you will be a Christian bodybuilder. This world cannot break you. It will do its worst and you will prevail. That doesn't mean you're saying bring your worst. That means as it comes, you will prevail. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we're going to talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit in coming weeks. He talks a lot about the Holy Spirit in Romans. But for now, we're talking about hope. And that hope leads to God's love, right? It's faith, hope, and love. The three Christian virtues, the greatest is love. That hope brings about that love being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. A lot, of, a lot of people are practical and they think hope isn't worth anything. Hope is very valuable Christian currency. And you might look stupid to the world being hopeful, especially if you're hoping for a miracle. But that's exactly what we're told to hope in. Biggest miracle at all, of all is that I could be saved because I'm a bad guy. And God had to move heaven and earth to save me, and he did. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 6. You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean we were powerless? When were we powerless? We're always powerless? Before what? There it is. Before Christ died for us, we were powerless against the powers of sin and death and hell. What the, the doctrine I'm preaching, the doctrine I preach on some level every Sunday is the doctrine of the fall, which is you and I were born irredeemably broken, dead in our sins, zombies, undead. And what Christ did was he brought us to life. Christ came not to make bad men good, but to make dead people alive. That's what Christ did. Now, what if I don't identify as dead? Does that mean I'm not dead? We already covered this ground. Your feelings are not a good guide for the reality of who you are. You and I were born in sin. All humans ever born were born in sin in need of a supernatural saving act from God. We were enslaved to death. 
And this is not just Christian teaching necessarily. People from all kinds of traditions know humans are born in chains. Humans are born enslaved. It was Bob Dylan who says everybody's got to serve somebody, right? And that was before he became a Christian. I don't know. If, is he still a Christian? I think he fell away, but I, I don't know. Uh, somebody tell me. Look it up. Don't look it up right now. Look it up later. Everybody's got to serve somebody. We're all born enslaved. We're, we're born with these slavish spirits. What God does is he sets us free through Christ Jesus. You never know freedom until you die to yourself and you're born again in Christ Jesus. That's what happens here. You see, at just the right time, when you and I were still powerless, dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, unable to save ourselves, that's the, that was the curse that the Jews had. They saw how they were dead, but they couldn't bring themselves back to life. Gentiles didn't even know they were dead. Christians came preaching that they were dead and needed new life, and they said, oh my gosh, you're right, I never knew. Jews said, we knew, and we were trying, and we were failing. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's that? That's me and you. Christ died for you when you were powerless. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you deserve that? None of us deserved it. We deserve bad things. God gives us good things. Is that not amazing? That's the most scandalous, wonderful thing. I deserve bad things. God has given me so many good things. He's given me my freedom. He's given me my life. He's given me every good thing in my life. Not because I deserved it, but because he is gracious. I cannot comprehend God's goodness. And I'll tell you, I know this sounds harsh to some people, but unless you understand yourself to be a sinner deserving of bad things, there is no way you can receive the goodness of Christ Jesus. Because you're going to feel entitled to those good things. You're going to feel like, I'm basically a good person, right? You know, I might have some sins, I might do some bad things, but I'm better than so and so. I deserve all these good things God has given us. And that means you don't know the power of sin. That means you're still a slave to it. It's not until you see sin for how awful and horrible it is, and you see it deep in you and you hate your sin, that you can then repent and receive forgiveness through Christ. And he saw how ugly I am, and he chose to love me and die for me anyway. That's what Paul is saying here. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. It's talking about Jesus' blood on the cross. We've been justified. We've been pronounced uh, innocent even though we're guilty. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So God's wrath is, is upon all sinners. But because of what Christ did on the cross, God's wrath is not going to fall on me and you. Even though we deserve it, we have been shielded by the blood of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That's kind of a complicated concept, but the notion is what he did on the cross saves us. And then the, is Christ still alive? Yes, he was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God. And the fact that he is still alive saves us even more. Both things are salvific, his death and his life, both save us. 
His death justifies us. His life sanctifies us, makes us grow in holiness because we are connected to him through the Holy Spirit now. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God. Is it a sin to boast? Yes, but not in God. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've already been forgiven. That is in the past tense. We have received, it's been completed, reconciliation. We're not enemies of God anymore. He ended the fight. We couldn't, we couldn't meet his standard. He met it for us. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He goes on to another thought connected. But right here what he's talking about is the doctrine of the fall. Because of what Adam and Eve did, all of their children, including us, are born in guilt and sin. Even if we don't do any sins, we are still in a state of sin, alienated from God. It's saying, this is how, he's saying, this is the deal. Because of what Adam did, all of us are born under a curse. Now, the, the best metaphor this, for this right now in our culture is uh, one of the, and I know this gets people worked up, but just get over it, okay? Because this is important. When we learn about critical race theory, there are several different things that, that are fundamental to that worldview. And one of them is inherited guilt, okay? That because of, for me, example, I, I come from a long line of white people on lots of sides. And white people have done bad things in the past. Therefore, because of those bad things they did, I am born with their guilt on me. So I am born with a, a bunch of privilege and a bunch of guilt because of what my ancestors did and, and my ethnic heritage. Now, I renounce that, but I believe in the guilt inherited by Adam. And a lot of people would say, what sense does that make? And I would say that critical race theory is a competing religion. I would say that everybody is guilty, not just some races. There are no good races and bad races. We're all just bad. We're all born with the guilt of Adam on us, on us, and it's very strange and racist to say some races are more guilty than others or less guilty than others. That is, by definition, racism. And I know there are some people who, who like it, and I, I just don't know what to say other than that's racist and you really shouldn't because all races are equally made in God's image, right? And we're all equally born in sin and all equally born in need of redemption. And, and we need to leave this racist stuff behind us. It has no place in the present or the future. And I know that some people think that they're gonna equal the scales by shutting some down and lifting some up. That is not how justice works. That's never how it's worked. It's never gonna work that way. Not this side of heaven. God can do it. And that's the thing. God's, this religion is just fine. What we have in the Bible, it is, we don't need to make up a new religion based on race. We've got a perfect religion based on God and his righteousness, his forgiveness, his atonement. When we start using our own mind and trying to achieve righteousness on our own terms, we are going to create hell on earth. We've done it several times before. We're doing it now. But just because I would say critical race theory is wrong and inherited guilt that doesn't mean the notion of inherited guilt is wrong. The Bible teaches that you and I inherit the guilt of Adam and Eve. And there is no way around that. That is integral to the worldview promoted by the Bible. You and I are born guilty because of what Adam and Eve did. Verse 13. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. That is a weird sentence. In 2 Peter, he warns, Paul writes some confusing letters, but that does not mean you get to just believe whatever you want. But here he seems to say, before the law was given, they couldn't really do wrong. 
To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. There was sin in the law, in the world, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. That's a weird thing to say. I don't know how to reconcile that with the rest of Romans. Because he was clear in, in chapter 1, wasn't he, that everybody's guilty and charged with sin? So I'm just going to, I, I should have researched this more this week, but I, I, I want to just brush over that and let's come back to it at another date because that's hard to explain. If he's already said you're guilty in your sin, even though you didn't have the law, it's strange for him to say this now. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So the law was given to Moses, right? But humans were around for a long time before that. It's saying death reigned because sin causes death until Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. So death reigned even over those who didn't break a command. How does that happen? It happens because all of us are born in sin. Even if we don't commit sins, we are still in a state of sin, alienated from God, enemies of God. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. He's talking about Jesus. Adam was made in God's image, Jesus is the new Adam who undoes what Adam did. And so we're going to see a lot of language about that now. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the key to this. He's talking about the trespass is what Adam did. He, he, he trespassed against God and passed guilt down. The gift is what Jesus did on the cross. That's the gift that, that purchased our salvation. Okay? Bought my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We sung that a minute ago. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, who's it talking about here? Who's the one man? Adam. Because of his trespass, everybody dies. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So because of what Adam did, all of us die. Because of what Jesus did, all of us can live. That's the equation it's presenting here. Verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Here it's showing that what Jesus did is actually more powerful than what Adam did. What Adam did was very powerful. The power of sin is so powerful that you are enslaved to it and you can't shake loose of it. But then what Jesus did is even more powerful than that. And so we're gonna end with the concept that grace is more powerful than sin. That's where we're going, and we're going to talk more about next week. Spoiler alert. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So he's setting Adam up against Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam, and he's more powerful than and better than Adam. Because of what Jesus did, we need not fear the curse of Adam. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. See, he's saying the same thing over and over in different ways. So also, one righteous act, through Jesus, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners... So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. I, I'm actually really glad he says the same thing over and over in different ways so that we, I don't think there's any way we get through this and don't understand. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. 
That's an interesting thing to say. The law was brought in through Moses, right? There was already sin in the world, it said. However, it's saying when the law was introduced, sin was magnified. What's the word here? It increased. Trespass increased because of the law. We'll talk about that in a second. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What's more powerful, sin or grace? Grace, obviously. There's no other way to read this. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can anybody say thanks be to God? So what we're dealing with here, the, the, the thing that's stuck in our craw, and the thing that Paul is trying to present a nuanced argument about is the law, the Jewish law. And the metaphor I provided a couple weeks ago, nobody likes it except for me, is you got two cancer patients, one has a diagnosis and one doesn't. Both still have cancer. Both are still going to die, but one knows why and the other doesn't. The Gentiles are the patient that don't know why. They're born dead in their sins under the power and slavery of sin. They don't even see it. The Jews are like the cancer patient that have had all the tests done and can see the cancer advancing. But they're still going to die. So Paul is trying to explain the eternal value of the law. The law is real. The law is good. The law highlights God's nature and the fact that we are not like God. But even so... It makes it that much worse because it points out and highlights all the ways in which we fall short. So the law seems to exaggerate the sin. But I, would, I, I think it's false to assume that when someone doesn't see the sin, it doesn't exist. Not just because of what chapter 1 says, but also we're in a really weird position if we go, well, people can't be judged if they don't receive the law. Some people think this. And in that event... The meanest thing that you can do is tell somebody God's law. Because beforehand, they would have gotten by scot-free. They would have been judged according to something else or not at all. Now you give them God's law, they're going to be judged by it, and they're not going to do well. They're, before, they probably would have made it, but now there's a greater likelihood they're going to go to hell. In fact, telling them the law of God is a hateful thing if they were already probably going to make it before you told them. Do you understand what I'm saying? For some reason, nobody thinks about this. I think it's because we like being nice. We want to believe everybody can make it on their own terms. You can't. God sets the terms. There's one God. There's one covenant. There's one set of terms under which we gain entry to the kingdom. That's the, the, the condition of faith in Christ Jesus. And if that condition is not met, you are not going to be welcome in the kingdom. There will be a bad future for you. And so Christians, we warn people because we love them and we want good things for them. And they will not get good things if they do it on their own terms. If they turn to their own cultures, their own norms, other religions, all of that leads to death and destruction. There's only one path that leads to salvation. It's narrow and it's difficult, but God has given it to us. And to act as though we don't have it, to act as though what we have is the same as what everybody else has is, is a lie from the evil one. We have been given this treasure, brothers and sisters. Yes, in clay jars, but a treasure nonetheless. And we should see it for what it is. We've got this one life, and it's a short life, and it's over before you know it. The barons are talking to me before worship, talking about how before you know it, your kids are grown up and leaving the house. And that's your life. You look back on your life at the end and go, it was so short. I wasted so much of it. But you are here right now because part of you at least knows that this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing, and every day needs to be lived in the light of your faith that you've received here and now, because anything outside of faith is going to lead to death. And you don't want that, do you? I don't want that for you. And as we get clear about that in our own hearts, that's what directs us outward. 
to the people living around here, the people, our, our friends, our enemies living around us. I don't wish damnation on my worst enemy. And there's some people who've done me wrong. There's some people who've been really nasty to me. I don't want a single one of them in hell. I've been given this one life to minister to people, and God help me if I don't offer uh, a ladder to those in hell. I preach kind of hard on this today because I'm aware that the waters we're swimming in are very indifferent to the doctrine that I preach today. There are a lot of people who straight up just don't believe that there's a judgment coming. There's a lot of people who straight up don't believe that the way of Christ is any better than any other way. There are a lot of people that refuse to believe that we're born broken and in need of salvation. I don't know what to say other than you're wrong. The message of Jesus Christ is one, it's true, it's good, and God help me if I don't preach it. And God help you if you don't receive it. It's noon right now. Should I stop? I say we stop. I say we stop. We're going to pick up in chapter 6 next week. We're going to talk about how grace is more uh, powerful than sin. But then we're going to talk about how you shouldn't sin even though grace is more powerful. It's one of the most lovely books ever. So I'm excited to keep doing this with you. Um, Here's what I want to ask of you, because we spent a lot of time in the theoretical today. I want to ask you, if, a, if you've written off this doctrine, there are a lot of people in Methodist churches who have written off the doctrine that I preach today. There are a lot of people who call themselves Methodists who say, we're not born in sin. If you've written this off, I want to ask that you walk around in that doctrine. In the doctrine I preach today, I want you to reconsider that you've written it off this last week. I want you to consider... What does this doctrine have as a gift to offer me? Is there a chance I've been wrong? And I know it's a sin to ask people to change. I'm being sarcastic. It's the most loving thing to ask somebody to change. I really want to ask you to to just consider it and consider if maybe the people who believe this sort of thing are not ignorant fundamentalists, but are actually people who love you and want better for you.